Why little tea trauma ain't so little. My name is Andrea and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And today, we are diving deeper into complex trauma. You guys, we are always going to be diving deeper into complex trauma, as this is one of the core issues of being an adult child. Today, I am talking to Crystal Lampett. She is a licensed therapist. She is a trauma specialist. And she is going to be sharing with us about the narcissistic relationship that led her into therapy, which then led her to make a career change into mental health and about a treatment model that she uses with her patients to address complex trauma. It is called NARM, Neuroaffective Relational Model, specifically designed to address attachment, relational, and developmental trauma. So basically all the shit that we be dealing with. Now, I was not super familiar with NARM, so I was excited to dive into this with Crystal as well as to provide you guys with some info on another recovery healing option for us crazy ass adult children. Now, I've probably said this before, but I'm going to say it again. A large motivator in creating this podcast was to shine a light on, to bring attention to, to destigmatize little t trauma. So when we talk about trauma, we talk about big T trauma and we talk about little t trauma. And big T is probably what most view as being trauma. Catastrophic events, life-threatening events, a natural disaster, a terrible accident, a physical or sexual assault. And then we have little t trauma relatively smaller, more personal, distressing events that anyone can go through at some point in their life. Events that exceed our capacity to cope and cause disruptions in emotional functioning. Now, empathy, awareness, and acceptance for the impact of little t traumas can be extremely difficult to garner because of this common misconception that these events are less severe. But research now concludes that repeated exposure to little t traumas can cause more emotional harm than exposure to a single big T traumatic event. And it is the accumulation of these little t traumas that result in complex trauma and complex PTSD. And complex PTSD has all of the same symptoms as regular PTSD, flashbacks, insomnia, depression, anxiety, isolation, and it also has some additional symptoms that are not applicable to just general PTSD. Low self-esteem, low self-worth, difficulties in intimate relationships, difficulties managing emotions, and the reason for these additional symptoms is due to the fact that complex trauma usually occurs when we're children and is typically perpetuated by someone close to us and someone that we see on a regular basis. And this results in a negative impact in brain development, as well as a negative impact on our sense of self and on our identity formation. 
And so that's why it's so fucking important that we talk about this shit. Realizing that I had endured trauma as a child and that I was experiencing trauma responses in adulthood was such a pivotal moment for me. Now, at first, it was hard for me to grasp, and I felt a little ridiculous at the notion that I had experienced trauma. How could I say I experienced trauma when I had never been physically or sexually abused? How could I say that I experienced trauma when so many other kids had it way worse than I had? But then I read The ACOA Trauma Syndrome by T.N. Dayton, and it was through that book that I was able to understand and accept that I had endured trauma, that the emotional abuse and neglect, the unpredictability within my home, the parentification, being scapegoated, all of that equated to trauma. I highly recommend you go back to episode six for my interview with Tian if you have not listened to it. And also, I will be having her back on the show soon. She is about to release an adult child workbook that's super exciting. So I will have her back on as soon as that is released so she can tell us all about it. But having this realization and this acceptance that I was suffering from complex trauma and complex PTSD, that allowed me to release so much shame around my thoughts, my feelings, and my behaviors in romantic relationships for years. I couldn't figure out what the fuck was wrong with me, and I felt so much shame specifically related to the fact that I was unable to change in spite of my best efforts to do so. But these overreactions that I had, the hypervigilance, the emotional turmoil that I endured, it all just seemed so irrational and unnecessary and self-inflicted, yet totally uncontrollable. And then I realized that the reason it was uncontrollable was because It was a response to unresolved trauma that I didn't even know was there. I wasn't pathetic. I wasn't a loser. I wasn't insane. I was suffering from a form of PTSD, complex PTSD, which I want to emphasize is nothing to be ashamed of. We talk about powerlessness and unmanageability as it relates to addictions, but the same holds true for unresolved trauma. We are completely powerless over our triggers, our responses when it comes to unresolved, untreated trauma. And those responses can make life real fucking unmanageable. But also just like addiction, while we can't erase it or make it disappear, we can treat our trauma, we can befriend it, we can understand it, we can learn tools to deal with it, And we can get to a place where it is no longer in the driver's seat of our peace of mind. Well, I'm going to get off my damn soapbox now and let's talk to Crystal. But of course, before we do so, we need to talk about giving this podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you don't have Apple, that's totally fine. Just tell everyone else about it to listen to it. If you also have Apple and you already gave me a five-star review, still tell everyone about this damn podcast Thanks. Love you all. You walked into the party like you were walking onto a yacht. Your hat strategically dipped below. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce a licensed therapist, a trauma specialist, a former 
news anchor or, or news reporter, <laughs> Crystal yeah. Lampett. We're so excited to have you here. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. It is always a little bit weird to try to like put yourself in a box, right? Like, like I don't know, what am I? I'm all these things. Um, but yeah, I'm grateful to be here and getting to talk about mental health because that's that's my jam. Yeah, last week I had um, a, a former clown turned hypnotherapist. So stop! Yeah. I love that. Don't you just love the past lives that people have led? Like yes. at various times, I have had so many different careers. And now here I am. So you're not a former circus performer because I'm only I'm only interviewing guests that were once like were you the bearded lady once maybe? Uh, <laughs> no, no, at least not that I can recall. Um, but I was a preschool teacher for a hot minute, um, and I was a documentary. I worked with very closely with a documentary filmmaker. I was an editor and a videographer for a long time. Um, and then I worked in television and then now I'm a, a speaker, therapist, mental health advocate, all of the above. What kind of documentaries were you helping produce? So they were really cool. They were typically women centric documentaries. So, um, they were usually documentary series. I will very quickly plug if any of you have HBO max, um, the, the producer who I used to work with. Um, just released her newest film. It's called Transhood. It's on HBO and it's all about kids and teens transitioning. Um, and it's just a lot about gender identity and it's, it follows them for a few years. Um, it's a whole group of people in Kansas City and it just follows them for a few years as they sort of go through this self-discovery. Wow. Is it new? It's new. Yep. Oh, it came out last year, I want to say. It's newish. I think it came out last year. Um, so we worked on stuff like that, anything to do with women's issues, identity, um, rites of passage and growth and adolescence. Um, so we did some really cool stuff there for a while. And she is still doing that. Um, you know, she's busy. And uh, I transitioned over into in front of the camera work about, gosh, 10 years ago, probably um, eight years ago. And then now I'm, I'm working in mental health. So Wonderful. So there's so much yeah. that I want to talk with you about, but I wanted to start with, I just rewatched your Ted talk. Oh, um, yeah, it's great. And I'll include it in the show notes for everyone to watch, but I was hoping that you could just talk a little bit about what led you into seeking treatment, mental health treatment for yourself. And then what it was that led you to making this a career path. Yeah, I, I mean, and it was, I'm glad you referenced the Ted talk because there is so much more to that story. Right. But they give you 15 minutes and they actually told me <laughs> they were like, okay, so if you go past the 15 minutes, we're going to play you off the stage. We're going to do like the Academy award music <laughs> and we're going to play you off the stage. So you got to get it in within 15 minutes. So was which, it a live uh, virtual event? Yes, it was okay. a live virtual event. And okay. so it was very, very tight on time. And holy crap, 15 minutes trying to tell that story in 15 minutes was insane. Um, so I, I tried to touch on the important parts, but then I also tried to make it not just about my story. I was hoping it would resonate with anybody who has ever felt sad, sick and stuck, which is the name of that TED talk. Um, so that's kind of where I was, honestly. Um, I think by the time I sought therapy, I was very sad, very sick, <laughs> feeling very stuck. Um, I had experienced some autoimmune issues 
I woke up with a bald patch one morning um, and was diagnosed with alopecia areata and then also a couple of other um, autoimmune illnesses. So and was it really literally overnight that like yeah. you discovered yeah. it and did oh, it yeah. all come out at once or you just hadn't noticed it? Um, it all came out all at once. Um, it was, it was about like the size of maybe like a golf ball, a little bit, you know, maybe a little bit bigger than a golf ball. And then there was a, there was another smaller one as well. Thankfully it was in the back of my head. So for my career at the time I was on camera, I was hosting a morning show. Um, you couldn't see it. And I did end up buying like clip-ins and extensions. I did all sorts of shit to try to cover that up. And it was stressful because I'm like, oh my God, is this going to keep happening? And when I went to the doctor, they basically said, yeah, I mean, with alopecia areata, it's just, it's idiopathic. We don't know what causes it. Um, your hair just might fall out from time to time. So I was like, oh, well, that's reassuring. And I was, I don't know, 24, 25. I was mm. really young, um, maybe 26. So, so of course I start doing all this research and thinking like, wow, this is strange. Um, and with autoimmune illness, once you have one, you tend to get some of the others. And so the really serious ones like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus can be extremely, um, debilitating, debilitating. Yes. Um, so thankfully I am very lucky. They did test me for all of those. Um, as of now, I don't seem to have any of those issues, but I did get diagnosed with Sjogren's syndrome, which affects your mucous membranes. It causes a lot of dryness, um, psoriasis, and then also hypothyroidism. Um, so I was on these meds and trying different things and actually steroid injections did help with my hair, but a lot of the other stuff, it just wasn't it just wasn't helping. I didn't notice enough of a difference to continue mm-hmm. being on so many medications. So that was kind of a big wake up call. But then I also thought, okay, like what is happening in my life <laughs> that my body is freaking out on me? Um, and I'm a big believer in looking at the whole person and looking at the systems that we live within. And if you are chronically under stress and you are chronically overworked and you're not sleeping, you're not eating right, and you're in an abusive or toxic situation, your body's going to freak out on you. It probably will. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was actually in an abusive relationship at the time. And that was what got me to therapy. So all the physical stuff didn't even occur to me that that would really have much to do with anything. I just thought, wow, cool. I'm one of these people with autoimmune illness now, Um, Mm. you know, mid twenties. Um, but I actually went to therapy because I was in a really abusive relationship. So were you still in the relationship when you started going yes. to therapy? Yeah. And yes. do you want to talk about a little bit of what that relationship looked like? So, I mean, I'll share this much. It wasn't, it wasn't physically abusive. So that's why I didn't know. Um, I just didn't know. And, but then when I learned about psychological and emotional abuse and control, and when I learned about narcissistic personality disorder, um, and narcissism in general, I was like, oh, and we weren't even really talking about narcissism. This was several years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, not many people talked about narcissism. No one talked about narcissistic abuse. Um, it was just sort of like all behind closed doors and no one else would see it because this person would treat me really well in front of other people. But at home, it was a totally different story. Um, So after I figured out that it it could be characterized as abuse, that it was, and and there was no question about it. I was super depressed. I was very anxious. I was always on edge, always walking on eggshells. And prior to this, I felt like I was a relatively happy person, you know, like pretty okay. 
So once my therapist at the time helped me to kind of discern like, oh no, these are abusive and these are toxic behaviors. Um, I just made the decision to walk away. How long had you been in the relationship when you started to go to therapy? Almost three years. Okay. And you said that at the time you weren't aware that it was emotional or psychological abuse. So what did you, what were you going to therapy for? Just that you need help for for the relationship. relationship? Yeah. Yeah. I thought something was wrong with me. So I thought like, I'm super depressed and anxious all the time. And for some reason, I can't seem to make this relationship work. And my partner is telling me that like, I'm too sensitive, that I have trauma, that like I'm messed up and that I need help. And I believed him. I mean, I was like, I probably am crazy. (laughs) You know, I had a pretty, you know, um, I had a a great support system growing up in my, in terms of my family, but we moved around a lot. So I was born in Egypt, raised in Indonesia, lived in, gosh, I think I've lived in nine different countries. Mm -hmm. Um, and throughout childhood, I probably lived in like five or six different countries and went to so many different schools. I mean, it's just a, just a crazy upbringing. Um, and for a time, my dad lived in Thailand because that was where his job took him. And we stayed here, we stayed in Kansas so that, um, we could go to school here and go to college. And so there was a lot of stuff going on there that I don't think I really realized probably had an effect on the way that my attachment system developed and the way that my nervous system developed. So I really did think like, maybe something is wrong with me, you know, and I've had a pretty, I I also have my own trauma, like my own big T and little T trauma as well. Yes. Which I want to get into at some point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I'll just, I won't disclose some of like the intense stuff because I don't want (laughs) to, A, I don't want to make it all about me and I don't want to like trigger anyone, but some of it was pretty, it was like, yeah, like shock trauma, pretty bad stuff. Um, but I didn't know uh, the relationship abuse. I didn't know that that could be considered trauma. And I didn't know that that was something that, um, could really mess up your mental health. So I thought I was crazy. So that's why I went to therapy. I thought I was insane. And, and I thought that it was my fault that the relationship wasn't working out. Um, that was not the case (laughs) at all. And I look back on that person now and I'm like, wow, that was a totally different, totally different, um, just a totally different person in some ways. Mm. Um, but it, but it, that's what happens in these relationships. So now I work with narcissistic abuse survivors. Um, and it is amazing to hear the similarities in the stories and the, the phrases verbatim, the gaslighting phrases, the way that they feel, the way that they describe their experience it is textbook. And now that I think we know what narcissism is and we know what narcissistic abuse is, I think more people are learning to not be okay with this and to start looking at, okay, what is it about me that is putting myself in these relationships? Um, so I did have to confront a lot. I did have to look at, you know, my attachment trauma. I had to look at my codependency. Um, I had to look at a lot of my own stuff so that I could understand, you know, what, what made it, why was I so okay with this treatment for so long? Mm-hmm. Um, was it like a slow burn? Like how, how long were you in therapy before you were actually able to walk away? And also was there a particular pivotal aha moment that you had? You know, it's funny because are you familiar with like Enneagram stuff? Yeah. Enneagram. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so I'll say this, I'm, a, I'm an Enneagram one. And you want to explain one- what that is for people who don't know what the fuck we're talking about? <laughs> So the Enneagram is a personality 
Um, it is a personality testing sort of system, almost like the Myers-Briggs personality test. Um, but instead of, you know, the letters like INFJ or E, whatever, um, there are there are nine personality types. Um, and I don't use this a lot in my practice because I think there's plenty of resources and anybody who wants to Google the Enneagram, like there's so much that you can find on online. And, and I never want to put people in a box. Like I never want to say we're way too complex for that, but the Enneagram one. So ones tend to be the reformer where we, we tend to have a pretty, um, distinct idea of right and wrong. We're very detail oriented. We tend to be organized, hardworking rule followers. And some of this I'm working on, like a lot of my perfectionistic tendencies I've, I've worked on enough to where they're not as um, intense, but I will say my oneness in this particular situation at that time, I didn't know this at the time really helped me because for me, when the facts are laid out in front of me, I can see, Oh, this is abuse. Like I'm not crazy. (laughs) This is abuse. Um, so the discernment really helped me because I would say by session two of therapy or session three of therapy, I, I discovered, or my therapist shared with me the power and control wheel, which I use a lot with my clients. It's just a wheel that sort of describes, um, the ways that abuse can show up ways that power and control can be used in these, um, unhealthy relationships. And she showed me that. She showed me the red flags of domestic violence and she's awesome. She worked with a lot of DV um, survivors as well. So she showed me the red flags of domestic Mm -hmm. violence. And on all of these checklists, my partner was meeting almost all of them, except for physical abuse. That was the only thing he didn't meet was he wasn't hitting me. Um, But everything else, everything else was, was clearly abuse. So that was a big eye-opening moment for me. And I remember she was very surprised because I came to the next session after that. And I was like, I ended it. We're done, which was so wow. hard. I mean, it was, so was this a matter of weeks? It was a, yeah, it was as soon as I saw the facts the, that week, I ended it. Oh, wow. I usually have to sit in it for several months and feel like shit for months and months and months before I can do anything. So yeah. kudos to you. A few weeks. Well, thank Holy you. Shit. I do think <laughs> that it was over for a long time. I'm, and we were yeah. actually getting to a place where we had gone ring shopping and we were getting ready to get engaged. So there was sort of some heat underneath me of like, okay, Crystal, are you really going to do this? Are you really going to marry into this? Cause this is not, this is probably not going to change. Um, so that, that kind of lit, lit a fire under me a little bit. Um, and then I was mourning for a long time. I had been unhappy in the relationship probably the entire time, <laughs> everything outside of the honeymoon phase of the narcissistic abuse cycle, everything past the like first three months was pretty bad. Like it was just, it was a slow kind of the, what is it? The, the frog in a boiling pot of water. Um, you know, if you have a frog in a boiling pot of water and you slowly turn up the heat, the frog will not jump out because it is so it's called that creeping normality. When you've been gaslit, it's trauma bonding, it's trauma bonding. And it is a slow, um, increase in, um, damaging behavior. Yep. So mm-hmm. it's not like you go on a first date with a narcissist and you get slapped in the face, right? Like, I think people think that that's what DV is. And that's not true. You go on a first date and on the contrary, you usually feel very special and very charmed. And this person is usually like, wow, this is the first person who's paid this much attention to me. Um, so it was, you know, it's really nice for that first few months. And it doesn't help that of course, chemically you have a whole 
cocktail of yeah. bonding um, ups and downs, ups and hormones downs. that are coming up. Yep. You've got that. It's that honeymoon. It's that, that, that new person, you know, new love cocktail of, of hormones and, and emotions that come up. So there's just a, it was a quick bond. Um, next thing you know, we were living together, we were doing, and, and then from there, it was pretty clear. Um, I just wasn't happy, but again, I thought it was me. I didn't think it was necessarily a relationship. Um, but after a time, um, when it got close to getting engaged, the one gift that I will say he gave to me is he told me the truth. He came clean about all of his behaviors. He was hiding a lot. He was leading Mm -hmm. a double life. And he came clean to me about a lot of his addictions and a lot of his um, kind of infidelity and a lot of stuff that thankfully, I I do think um, the way that I hold it now is that whatever capacity he did have to care for me, that was him showing me. That was him saying, I do care about you enough to tell you the truth so that you can make a decision with your eyes wide open and with all of So was that when you broke up Um, with him that he disclosed that to you or, or when did that happen? Um, it was, it was around that time. It was like, I had to corner him to even explain anything to me. He wouldn't talk to me for weeks. Um, so I had to kind of like get really, uh, persistent about like, I know something is going on. I was convinced that he was having a full blown Mm -hmm. affair. Um, that didn't end up being what it was, but there were some, Mm -hmm. there were some sort of trends towards that. Um, and certainly a lot of, um, a lot of secrets. So I, I did kind of have to get it out of him. Like, I was just like, I'm not leaving until you tell me what's going on because you're acting weird and this is not okay. And I can't, we can't get engaged like this. I don't even know what I'm marrying. Like what, what's happening here? Um, so he did finally tell me, um, and that was, that made it clear. And then it, it matched, you know, that combined with knowing the signs of abuse, um, that helped. And, and by the next week I was like, okay, let's get you moved out this weekend. Um, and he did, and he didn't put up a fight. Um, he just kind of knew that, over. you know, this was over. So then he- um, and it's amazing. Cause my health like bounced back after that. Wow. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. So then he's out of the picture yeah. and I'm assuming now you continue to, to seek therapy and kind of work through your own shit. Right. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I do. So I like therapy. So as a therapist, I think it's important to have your own therapist. You don't have to have it all the time. You don't have to go every week. You don't have to, it doesn't even have to be, you know, if you don't need it, then, then fine, take a break. Um, so I actually, after that, getting out of that was such a big boost to my health and well being that I actually stopped therapy for several years after that. And I was like, cool, this is great. (laughs) And then I got in a relationship with another narcissist. So yeah. Yeah. I had my brain number one and my brain number two. So this is your narcissist number one and narcissist number two. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yes. Luckily, luckily by that time, by the time round two came around, Um, I was already in school. I had decided by then to change careers. So this was my, I was 30 when I went to grad school. Um, So a few years had passed. I wasn't in therapy for several years. Um, But then I decided, you know what, I think this is more important. Um, This is how I want to make an impact. And I started sharing mental health content on the morning show. I was getting really positive feedback. Um, and I connected with some local therapists as well. And I just thought, oh, okay, this is what I need to be doing. This is what I felt my purpose was. 
Um, so I was, I was in school. Um, and that was one of the big red flags was that he, um, he didn't want me to go to school. Mm-hmm. Um, he told me that I needed to drop out and he told me that I needed to not pursue this career, um, because he could see that I was, I was holding boundaries. Mm-hmm. I was, yeah. And I was calling him out on, on behaviors. And, um, so, yeah, so luckily that one did not last three years. It was, it was less than half that. Um, and, and that one got a little scary. Um, I had to install cameras. He would show up at my house. There was a lot of crazy shit that went on with that one, but I was like, okay, this was clearly a narcissistic situation. Um, but, but now, you know, finally, I think (laughs) I'm good. I have a partner now who is a wonderful human. Um, and he has been just like, it's, it's amazing when you get into a healthy relationship after these really terrible ones. Um, and you just get treated like a human. I mean, you think like the simplest things are like, wow, he listened, he listened to me talk. I'm like, wow, (laughs) it seems so foreign because for so long it was gaslighting, invalidating, minimizing, calling me crazy, calling me names. Um, and, and God, it's just, but that means that you, you changed, right? Because you're able to receive that and you're attracting that now because that holds true to what you believe about yourself. And the reason that we find ourselves in these toxic and unhealthy relationships is because a part of us believes that that's what we deserve. That's the best that we can do. And it just like reconfirms these faulty limiting beliefs that we hold about ourselves. So I'm imagining that you worked through some of that shit. Yeah, I really like, so I'm a big fan of EMDR therapy. Yep. I got, I received a lot of EMDR, um, I, which stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Yep. Um, I'm also, so I actually just got my certification in NARM, which is the Neuro Effective Relational Model. And that is really directed specifically towards complex trauma. So it's the only model right now that we have that is directed at complex trauma. Um, and that was yeah doing both doing both of those has been really helpful for me um I do think that it is it's such a complex on the one hand I don't think that people attract a certain type because they are broken or whatever I think narcissists and um bullies and abusers they're not picky you know they'll kind of go for whoever um they'll kind of go for whoever but the problem is what is it about you that's tolerating these behaviors? Mm -hmm. So it's not so much like you drew them in, you know, like they'll spot you in a crowd and then they'll test you and they'll see, Oh, will she tolerate if I cheat, if I lie, if I, you know, if I get wasted and um, hide things from her, whatever. Um, So the problem then becomes, okay, what is it about you that feels that these behaviors are okay? And sometimes it's as simple as we didn't have role models that showed us otherwise. And other times like with CPTSD, it truly is. It is a nervous system that has developed around significant attachment trauma. And so that type of treatment actually feels familiar on some level. And sometimes we equate what's familiar with safety and love, but that's not true. Just because it's familiar does not mean that it's safe or that it's healthy. But if that's all we've known, um, then we'll just continue. We'll just kind of say, Oh, well, this is how all relationships are. Um, and I should just be grateful that I have someone and we'll tolerate it. So, and so some of that becomes 
literally the way that your brain and your nervous system and your attachment system organize and develop. Um, and then some of that is also some of that, like you said, the limiting beliefs, the conditioned beliefs around you don't deserve better, or you need to play small, or this is as good as it's going to get. So just be grateful. And so I think there's, there's many ways that that stuff kind of gets passed down, unfortunately. Um, and in my work, the, for me, the best way to sort of one, two punch it is to really start to befriend the body um, and to really engage with what's happening in internally and also to address the cognitive processes as well. So that's where I really love NARM, which is uh, it's both a top down and a bottom up model, meaning it works not only with your mind and your cognitive processes, but it also works with some somatic pieces and stuff that's coming up in your body and your nervous system. And when you do that, it's kind of like when you like people like I love affirmations, right? But they didn't used to they didn't ever work for me. Um, They wouldn't land for me because my body and my nervous system never felt safe. Mm. So if you are under, if you perceive, if your brain, if your nervous system is primed toward hypervigilance, because that's how it developed, um, you're going to perceive more threats more frequently and probably for good reason. There probably was a threat at a certain period of time, but when, when you are constantly in that fight, flight, freeze survival mode, you're thinking parts of your brain go offline. So if the thinking parts of the brain are not online, you can scream affirmations at yourself until you're blue in the face, but you're not going to embody them. You're not going to believe them. You're not going to feel any different than five minutes ago. So that's why I think looking at the nervous system is so important because you have to understand if you don't feel safe in your own body, if you don't feel safe in your environment, no amount of cognitive processing is going to necessarily help at least not as much as you would probably hope. That's not to say you can read things and bibliotherapy is a real thing. Read books, talk to people, change those perspectives. That absolutely helps, but there is a felt sense of safety that needs to be had as well for real change to happen. Yeah. So I wanted, I want to talk more about NARM because it's something that I'm not super familiar with, but first I wanted, you know, in your Ted talk, you talk about big T versus little T and that's kind of a Mm -hmm. large reason or a large motivator and why I created this podcast was to shine a light on the little T and how that can be just as damaging and have just as many repercussions in adulthood as the big T stuff does. So I was hoping that you could explain the difference between the two and then we can talk about NARM. Yeah. 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 So big T and little T, these are phrases that were coined by Dr. Francine Shapiro. She is the creator of EMDR, super incredible, smart human being. Um, and I do like that she, um, started to give credence to the little T and she doesn't mean as far as I understand. And I think the way that the trauma field is moving now, it doesn't mean big T is more important or big T is more significant. That's not what that means. It just refers to big T is usually a little bit more visible. I like to think of it more as big T is the shock trauma that is getting in a car accident, being sexually assaulted, um, going to war. They're the things that we think of that equate to PTSD or that can turn into PTSD, not necessarily, but they can. So the big T is sort of the shock trauma and you'll see it, um, more evident 
evidently in flashbacks and in the way that that person presents. The little T, again, it's not that it's not as important or not as damaging. It's just maybe not as visible. So these are the psychological wounds. These are the psychological scars and the emotional scars that we carry from maybe not having consistent caregivers, from perhaps being in abusive relationships that were emotionally and psychologically abusive. They're just not necessarily as apparent. You won't see some, like you won't necessarily, you know, somebody with a little T trauma, maybe they don't have they won't be hiding because they heard a loud noise, you know, but they might have trouble in relationships. They might have trouble self-regulating. They might find themselves in constant stuck patterns of behavior that they don't understand why they keep doing it. Um, and, and so it's a little bit more subtle. It's not as visible to the naked eye, but people who have little T traumas or complex trauma, you can tell, I mean, there is, there's usually a history of chronic and prolonged trauma. So either abuse, neglect, and that includes emotional abuse and emotional neglect. Um, so what would be an example of a little T that maybe somebody wouldn't even think that that would even qualify as a little T? That's such a good question. Um, that could be a parent who is emotionally unavailable. Um, one, one, actually one tool that I really like is the ACEs questionnaire. So um, adverse childhood experiences study was done in the 90s by the CDC and Kaiser Permanente. And they looked at, there's a, there's a 10 question questionnaire and the higher your number, and it's all traumatic experiences, right? Like divorce, parent with mental illness, parent who was incarcerated. These are the types of examples, um, feeling unsafe. And the higher your ACE score, the higher the likelihood in adulthood, you'll have physical and mental issues. Um, so those are things you can look at this questionnaire and say, well, did I feel unsafe? Did I feel like, um, my parents weren't available consistently? Um, sometimes it is as extreme as a parent being incarcerated, but sometimes it's as simple as, you know, maybe mom had postpartum depression for a couple of years, which is very, very common. And she just couldn't attune to me in those first few years of life, the way that I needed that can cause a nervous system to develop with a disorganized or anxious or insecure attachment style. And that's real. And so later in adulthood, you may not understand why, but your relationships keep falling apart and you feel anxious or you feel really avoidant, like you shut down a lot. Um, or maybe one day it's hot and cold, you know, maybe in your relationships, you're like, wow, I really love this person. The next day you need them to shut down. Um, that's that disorganized attachment. Um, and those are the things like that can happen from a mom or dad being unavailable or inconsistent. Um, it can even happen in utero. So we know now that um, a lot of the development of the fetus can be impacted by the health of mom and whether mom has stressors or PTSD while she's carrying. So a really interesting study done on mothers during 9-11 showed that mothers who were pregnant during that traumatic event and who were impacted by 9-11, who had PTSD, they gave birth to babies who had lower birth weights, mm. um, lower cortisol levels. And these babies tended to be more colicky. So they were not as easy to soothe. Um, and they just had a lot of these issues that other women without the same issues, they did, you know, their babies didn't have um, that same development. So it's interesting to see how it can impact 
your nervous system, your brain development, starting as early as in mom's belly. I mean, that can, it's a, it's really, it's, it's a, it's a combination of so many factors from genetics, um, to health and wellness of mom to environment. It really is a combination of all of these things who develops CPTSD and who doesn't. Um, but I think it's fair to say that some, some of us, most of us will probably be exposed to some trauma at some point in time, but the way that we handle that or carry that and whether that turns into a quote unquote disorder really depends on our development, our resiliency, our support systems, and what we have in place to help us cope with that. Yes. So many, so many fucking factors. (laughs) So many things. Yeah. It's complex. That's why it's complex complex drama. So, um, so yeah, I was reading a little bit about, uh, Norm last night. And I guess my question to you is, is it a set process in the way that EMDR is where like, you know, you're going through these certain steps with a client when they come in, or is it more just a method based off certain principles? That's a great question, man. You did your research. Um, so I, I love that you looked into this because NARM is, there are structured parts of it, but I would say it is less structured than EMDR. So with EMDR, there is usually, um, you know, your eyes might be following something right and left. You might be holding, um, I call them buzzies, but they're just these two things that vibrate in your hands. You might be tapping, you might be doing butterfly taps on your shoulders. Um, and that's to help increase the communication between the left and right hemispheres of the brain. So that helps with processing. So it does feel much more structured, right? Because like you go in and you're either going to be, you're going to be doing something while you're processing. So NARM does not include that as much. There is a process. There are specific steps that you take as the practitioner, but I would say it is much more nuanced than EMDR. Um, and it's much more about curious inquiry. So as a NARM practitioner, it is more of a conversation. You'll be asking certain questions based around sort of the, the definitions or the steps that NARM has already detailed. So you kind of, you, you sit down, you talk to someone about what it is that they want for themselves, right? Starting with, all right, what, what do we want here? Um, and once you've identified that, After that, you are asking questions and you are getting curious and you are holding space for what's getting in the way of that. So would this be a goal? Would you come in with a goal or would it be coming in with a particular problem? So both. It typically NARM focuses less on behavioral because anyone can say I'm coming into therapy because I want to, I don't know, I want to stop yelling at my kids. Mm -hmm. Great, excellent goal. Um, and we will start there. Um, but a lot of times what, where we go is less about the behavior, because as soon as you make something about a function or a behavior, you can kind of set yourself up for failure <laughs> because, but here's the thing, there's, there's probably a reason why you're yelling at your kids. And so what NARM does is it kind of goes underneath that. It goes into, well, what is it about yelling at your kids, what's right about that? What is that providing you? What do you want instead? And how do you want to feel? Because most of us are after a feeling state. We're not just, I mean, like 
usually there's a reason, like, why do you want to stop yelling at your kids? Well, maybe because I want to feel more connected to them. Um, because I want to be a good father. Um, because I don't want to pass down the trauma that my dad imbued upon me. Um, or because I want to feel, you know, I want to, I want them to feel safe. I want to feel, um, like my family is a cohesive unit. So there's usually a feeling state that we're after. And I like to, if I can, it's not possible with everyone. We kind of have to do this in, in steps and layers. Um, but if we can get to the desired feeling state that somebody is after, then we start exploring, okay, what's getting in the way of you feeling more connected to your kids? What's driving that yelling or that aggressive behavior? And so I think it's a little bit more nuanced. It's not so much, here's the negative cognition and here, let's process it. It's more, okay, let's look at all of the various factors that are playing into this and how can we support you in choosing something different for yourself? But a lot of times there is an internal shift that needs to happen before the behavior will change. So if you want to just stop yelling at your kids or like whatever, like, sure, we could come up with a plan, <laughs> like, you know, a rewards and consequences. We could say, well, every time you yell at your kids, you got to, I don't know, put a hundred dollars in this jar or whatever. Like you can do it that way. And that's a very behavioral um, approach. But NARM stands for neuroscience, so neuroaffective, neuroscience affective meaning mood, relational, so relationship model. So it, it includes everything from the cutting edge research that we know about neuroscience, um, and then it also includes some of the mood and the relational pieces. Um, because when we, when we tackle all of that, that's when I think internal shifts start to happen, and it becomes less about what behavior can you achieve? You know, cause I think you can also kind of get that from anyone or anything. Yeah. Like we can put you on a workout plan or we can put you on a rewards and punishments plan. Like you can kind of do that if you want, but chances are, if you've tried all these things and that hasn't worked, there's probably something keeping that stuck. And we need to dig in and find what is it that's holding that behavior or that feeling or that impulse in place and how can we bring agency on board? How can we move from child consciousness, which doesn't have a lot of agency, to adult embodied consciousness where we do have choices, we do have um, different options. Um, so it's more effective, I would say, I've seen it used with many age groups, but I do like to add the disclaimer that it tends to work better with adults because our brain doesn't fully develop until our mid twenties. So I do use it with um, 18 and up and it can be very effective still. Um, but whenever we're talking about agency and choices, we have to hold space for the fact that five-year-olds don't have that many choices. So, so I would say, you know, it's, it's best. And most of the people who are coming to see me have usually discovered or are discovering that they have complex trauma. And that usually happens later in life anyway. Mm -hmm. And can you talk a little bit about being that this is podcast about the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family? Um, and what I was reading last night, can you talk a little bit about the role that examining the past plays? Cause my understanding of it was that it's, it's a piece of it, but it's not the focus of it. So I was hoping that you could explain how that plays into the process. So into the NARM process, kind exactly. of that. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Um, NARM does not require you to revisit every painful memory you've ever had. Um, it's not a cathartic model. 
It's not about let's go back there and feel all the feelings. I mean, that can happen. And sometimes that is a part of it. Um, but it's more about creating awareness of what's happening for you internally and moving from how was that in the past to how is it now and what other options might you have now? So it's not a requirement to sit there and rehash every terrible thing that's ever happened to you. Um, but if that comes up in the process, so if I ask a question and that's where my client's brain goes, then we trust that, okay, that's information that the brain wants to process. So let's go there. Um, but it's not, it's not something where you have to go through every single thing. And I do think overall, this isn't so much related to NARM, but I think in general, some level of self-awareness about your past is helpful because when you understand that those early experiences can impact your nervous system development, if we haven't processed and resolved some of that, you're probably still functioning with what can be called arrested development. You can still be functioning from a place where some part of you still believes that it's five or 10. Um, and that's what trauma can do. Trauma can keep us stuck in those really young states. So it's, again, it's not about revisiting like, well, my first year of life, this happened. You know, it's just about looking at, okay, when, what came up? How did you relate to that event then or memory or whatever? Um, and how is that showing up for you now? So I think that self-awareness is an important piece, but it's not a requirement. You don't even have to remember things that have happened to you because most of us don't, we don't remember the, the brain. Most of our brain development happens before age three. It continues throughout the lifespan. Your brain is always changing throughout the lifespan. Um, but a lot of it is in those first three years of life where your brain is really, really, your nervous system is very fragile, very sensitive, and it's developing very rapidly. So most of us, a lot of us will have stuff that we won't even remember, but the body remembers. Um, and that's where you can have these mystery illnesses or mystery symptoms, physical symptoms um, that sometimes, you know, we never find out what exactly caused it, but you can experience a shift in present day around, wow, something is happening for me right now. And I don't know what it is, but I'm noticing a tightness in my chest. Um, and so we just notice that and we make space for that. And, and when we are able to move through that and notice it, a lot of times these symptoms can start to alleviate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know for me, you know, obviously I didn't go through and talk about every single incident in my childhood, but it was so important for me to, to talk about that stuff. And to, especially with a therapist mm -hmm. to have to have the assistance of, you know, kind of like these, these, these events or these circumstances that we on our own can't see that it would, you know, result in us having, you know, certain belief, kind of like the little T stuff. Right. And yeah. really understanding how these events from our childhood are, you know, impacting how we operate in the world today. I think it's so important for adult children to, to really, um, understand that. Cause I mean, you know, I did therapy for years and I, and I knew that I had a dysfunctional upbringing and I talked about that, but it wasn't until I really dug into it and really understood it and really understood the, the way that a dysfunctional family system works. So I'm wondering, do you think that, um, do you think that NARM is something that is also like a tool to also pair with EMDR? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
And so I'm getting ready to train in EMDR actually because, um, yeah. So one of my colleagues, she does both and she has found that they work really well together. Um, so in Kansas city, there are not very many NARM therapists at all right now. They're, we're getting more. Um, but so I haven't seen like a ton of people combine it with different things. I actually, because I do love EMDR as well. Um, that's why I'm getting trained in it. Cause I want, I want to be able to do both. Um, but the other one here that I would, that I think is worth visiting, um, if anybody is interested is cognitive processing therapy. Um, so CPT is very cock. It's pretty much all cognitive. So we're not working with the nervous system so much, which is why I like to pair it with NARM because NARM has some of the embodied and the nervous system stuff. Cognitive processing therapy is very, very structured and you have homework every week. It's a manual. It's very concrete. And I do have clients who say, um, I want to revisit this trauma. I want to work through this specific traumatic event. Um, CBT was actually developed for sexual assault survivors, um, but I've used it on a number of different types of trauma, everything from complex trauma to PTSD. Um, And when somebody says, I actually do want to go through those specific events, I'll say, okay, like let's combine CBT and ARM. um, And then they'll be able to do some of the journaling and some of the prompts from CBT at home. um, And then we can discuss in session and then we can also do NARM in session. So if somebody wants that, I actually think that it can be great. And same thing with EMDR. With EMDR, a lot of times you do revisit the traumas. Um, in NARM, they do come up a lot. So I would say it's not like you need all of these. Um, yep. But for some people, you know, it's like if you're ready to go and you want to do homework and you want to journal, like, let's do it. Like, I love it when people come need in a and lot of help. ready to work. <laughs> no, I was. I'm like, I will do anything. Like My yes. life depends upon this. I saw my therapist twice a week for the first year and a half because, and I couldn't really afford it, but like, it was an investment in my future. And I knew that my life depended upon it. So what do you see as some of the most common resistances to treating and overcoming and working through complex trauma that you see with your clients? Well, anytime there's trauma, there is that avoidance Mm -hmm. impulse, right? Because if you think about it, the brain's number one job is to keep us alive <laughs> and it's to, to keep us safe from threat and a lot of times to avoid pain. So a lot of stuff that we learn to bury for years and years and years, like it'll come up one way or another, you know, those emotions that you've been ignoring, those physical symptoms you've been ignoring, like they're just going to get louder and louder and more and more painful until you fucking pay attention. That's basically your body, your nervous system, your very intelligently designed brain saying, Hey, pay attention to me. Um, because we've been bypassed long enough. So, but I, but I understand at the same time, there is sort of this bind, right? This double bind of like, but I don't want to feel all that. And I don't want to go there. And I hear people say a lot, and I've said this myself, like, I'm afraid if I go into this processing, or if I work on this trauma or whatever, that I'm going to feel all this pain and it's just going to last forever. And I'm going to wallow and I'm going to live there forever. And that's so common. Like, of course, like our brains go there because they don't want to, it doesn't, our brains don't want to feel pain. Um, so I do think there is a lot of avoidance. Um, and that's why timing is so important and consent and agency is so important, which is why I love NARM. The entire NARM model is 100 based on consent. Because as my colleague Britt Frank says it, 
the opposite of trauma is choice. And so much of our trauma happens because we didn't have a choice. So mm-hmm. I am not about to recreate some traumatic cyclical relationship in the therapy room. If you do not want to be there, um, we're not, we're not going to do it. Um, <laughs> and sometimes people are there, but then once they get there, they're like, I don't know. <laughs> and so, so then you're just holding space for, okay, well, where, where do you want to start if anywhere? And if you don't want to go anywhere today, we'll take a break. Um, but as long as you're listening to the client, and this is where I think it's so important to trust people with their own bodies and their own nervous systems. They are the expert on themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And as long as consent is on board, um, then we have a place to start. But if they're still in avoidance or overwhelm, or it's just not the right time for any number of very valid reasons, then I suggest taking a break and revisiting when they are ready. Um, But with that, you know, also understanding that sometimes people really do want the help. They're just not sure. They're not ready to dip their toe in. And so sometimes a good therapist is just going to kind of hold space for, okay, so a part of you really wants to do this. And a part of you really doesn't. And is it okay if we just sit with that for a while? And what would it be like to explore, you know, one or the other? And usually by the time people are ready to work on CPTSD, they'll come around to where they're like, yeah, I think I am ready. Um, but every now and then I'll have someone, you know, come in for a session and then they're like, Oh, nope, not ready. And then a year later they'll pop up on my calendar. Yeah. When they're in a shitload of pain. Right. right. Yep. I'll be like, <laughs> Oh, they're back. Yeah, they're not ready. You're like, okay, go, go find, you know, go have some more pain. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. But timing is, is a big part of it. Consent and agency. These are all a big part of it. So, so you have to hold space for that and you have to respect that. And, um, and yeah, and I would just say like, take your time, check in with yourself, do the nest meditation, see where you're at, you know, Mm -hmm. like, okay, am I ready to do this or no? Am I still feeling like, Ooh, I want to avoid. And that's okay. If, if you're avoiding, and, and you're just not ready to do it, or you're distracting yourself, you're doing all these things. Those are probably very valid adaptive survival strategies that are your attempts at keeping yourself to the feeling safe. So these are attempts at trying to continue feeling safe. Um, and when we do that for a long time, those sort of become like the four lane highway neural networks in our brain. Um, and that's our default mode. And until we kind of go in and we get curious about that, um, you know, that tends to be what we go for, for a long time and, and avoiding after some time, your body will let you know, it will let you know. Um, and hopefully by then you'll have, you know, the time, the resources, the capacity to seek a therapist and seek that support. Um, but if right now you're chilling and you're treading water and and you're surviving, like, okay, like I can respect that. I know. I feel like part of the reason that I wanted to create this podcast was to, uh, to shine a light on people avoiding this shit and make them feel really, <laughs> really uncomfortable about it and force them into getting help, right? <laughs> Awareness is always the first step to change. I am yep. hoping that I am making you feel really, really uncomfortable <laughs> that you are avoiding working through this shit. You know, we were talking before we started to record about, um, about Mark Willen. I wanted to tell you that yeah. he has a training on his website, an online training really that cool. is for clinicians on inherited trauma and how to do that. So that might be, have you, have you identified any inherited trauma? 
Um, so not like explicitly, um, I do come from a lineage of Indonesian women and there is a lot of trauma on the women's side of my family. So yeah, all sorts of shit, but I mean, nothing that like I could say, you know, I don't know how anybody says definitively like, yes, that I'm holding on to that. Um, but yeah, I could definitely see as a woman of color, as somebody who's mixed race, um, and knowing a little bit about my mom's history and my grandmother's history and some of the stuff and just a lot of, there was a lot of civil unrest in Indonesia. Um, you know, if you look at this wasn't in Indonesia, but the Cambodian killing fields, um, a lot of people of Asian descent hold some, some stuff in their bodies around that. I, I don't know that anyone can say like, yeah, that's definitely what's causing this. Um, but if you think about the way that your mother and your grandmother's and your grandmother's grandmother's nervous system has developed as a result of that level of stress and trauma, like it's very possible um, that some of that was passed down to you genetically. Um, and some of it, I like to think of, of um, inherited trauma or intergenerational trauma as yes, that gets passed down, but so do the strengths. Mm. So hold space for yes, there is intergenerational trauma. There's also intergenerational resilience. Mm. And so what are the qualities here that I do have as a result of some of these experiences of, you know, my loved ones and my family and my ancestors um, that I can also use as a resource um, and how can I see some of these things as strengths as well? I mean, I think even, even the things that we hate about ourselves sometimes like, God, I'm so anxious all the time. I mean, if you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, there was probably a need <laughs> in various tribes years ago for somebody who did have a more hyper alert nervous system, because that person is going to be detail oriented and they're going to know if somebody's yeah. trying to invade their camp or if something's different or, you know, they're going to be able to detect threat. So there's usually a reason. I, I firmly believe that all of the things that we experience, that we do, that are confounding to us or frustrating to us, it makes sense if you understand the full context. We don't always get to know the full context, um, but we can still hold space and compassion for ourselves when we do find ourselves in these cycles. Mm. So true. So you're in, you're in Kansas city. Yes. Yeah. So I'm technically in Overland Park, Kansas, but I work, but you know, Kansas city is right on the Kansas and Missouri border. Um, so I work in Overland Park, but I see clients from Kansas city and on the Kansas side as well. And so then are you, do you also do, um, virtual? Do you see yes. clients over zoom? Okay. Yes, so. I am doing virtual. I'm doing telehealth sessions, obviously for Kansas and Missouri residents. Um, but yeah, I'm doing in person as well, but we're going to, I'm going to have to see how COVID sort mm. of ugh, transpires here. Cause it's getting a little messy again. So where can uh, people find you? So, um, I'm on Instagram. I try to post fairly consistently, uh, a lot of mental health content there. So at crystal Lampet, um, my name is spelled a little weird. It's C-L-Y-S-T-L-E. Yes. So at Crystal Lampet, and then my website is clwellnesskc.com. Um, and oh, I just got a TikTok. I just got oh, a TikTok. Oh, shit, girl. So I know. I'm, I'm still learning I'm on it. there too. It's You are? Weird. Yeah. I, I was really big into it for a while. Um, and then I kind of got burnt out. I feel like you have to be so fucking, like you have to post so much content in order to 
to hit the algorithm. Um, yeah. And I also feel like I was putting some like really good quality, like comedy stuff on there. And it just was not receiving the, the, the appreciation, <laughs> oh but it's just all these, yeah. stu- I don't, I don't want to do just like the same dancey things that everybody else is I doing. Know. Like that's so lame. Like, you it's know, crazy that that's what blows up it's and ridiculous. I'm like, it's so stupid the same thing over and over. Yeah. I, that's my one. That's my big hang up about TikTok as well. I'm learning it. I'm going to give it a chance but I don't post regularly enough. Like I don't have a ton of stuff up and I don't have much happening in that area just because you got to be on, you have to know the trends. You have to know the songs that are popular. You got to learn the dance moves. Yeah. And why I don't want to do something like, I don't understand why people want to watch the same like 20 second dance move. Like, like let's do some original shit. Come on now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It is such a letdown, right? Like I'll, I'll post something that I think is really relevant. Like, Hey, here's some red flags that you might be on a date with a narcissist or something like something that feels like pretty easy, pretty accessible, not too crazy serious, but definitely relevant and important. And it'll get like no likes. I know. And then I'll post something totally stupid and thousands, thousands of the way I see it is, look, anything that is going to make mental health more accessible and more normalized and less stigmatized, I am here for it. So I am thankful that those therapists exist and that they are doing this hard work because it's a lot, even if, you know, sometimes I'm a little bit too self-conscious to go full on dance mode. Um, oh, I will embarrass that, the shit. I will but... embarrass the shit out of myself. I don't care. <laughs> I'm working on more of that and finding that line between how much self-disclosure, you know, even doing podcasts, I have to be really careful about how much self-disclosure there is. And, um, and you know, all of those sort of like therapeutic ethical things that I have yeah. to be aware of. So, so, so social media gets tricky in that regard. Yeah. So I haven't quite found my rhythm yet, but I'm working oh. on. I guess that, I guess that's like more of a reason why I should not become a therapist because I like to let it all out. <laughs> I don't know how to, I don't know how to do anything else. So, um, <laughs> I do think that that can be helpful though, because here oh, it is, it's my special sauce safe places is important. And this is why a lot of therapists with tons and tons of training and hours and hours of certification switch to becoming coaches. Because mm-hmm. once you are a coach, you can, you can practice across state lines. You can share whatever the hell you want mm-hmm. and you can pretty much do whatever you want. Um, but then you're no longer a licensed um, yeah. practitioner. So it's got its pros and cons. And I'm still, I'm still in the camp of like, okay, learning how to do this. I just, well, you just went to school for it. So you're going to ride the wave yeah. a little bit. <laughs> I'm just going to figure it out, find my own sort of balance between self-disclosure and being able to be me. I always want to be me. Right. I mean, I think authenticity is so important. Um, so I, I don't, I never want to betray myself, but at the same time, I don't want it to ever become like the me show. Um, and I certainly don't want clients coming in like with their own kinds of like trans, you know, projections or transference because they Mm -hmm. think a certain thing about me, which is something I learned from working in television. Um, when people get very familiar with you, they think that they know you and it shifts the relationship. Um, so that can be a really interesting dynamic to navigate, which, yeah, I'm going to have to, I want to figure that out, but, um, I'm watching what other therapists are doing and maybe I'll learn from that. Some just don't give a, no, you're going to know. You're just going to find your own jam girl. I'm going to find my own jam. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. And, um, yeah, everyone go check out her shit. 
uh, go follow her TikTok. I don't know how many TikTokers I even have listening to this damn thing, but Instagram, whatever. <laughs> and um, thank you so much for sharing and everything. Thank you. This was great. And all the girls dream that they'd be your partner. They'd be your partner. And you're so vain. You probably think this song is about you. You're so well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that can help you on your own journey. Thanks again to Crystal. You are a bright light. Please check out the show notes for all of her links and ways to connect with her. You can also find links to my social media. I am at Adult Child Pod on Instagram and TikTok. Uh, I'd also love to hear from you. Check out the show notes for ways to contact me. Next week, I have a very exciting interview with Catherine Gildener. She is the author of Good Morning Monsters. Check it out if you want to do a little research before next week's episode, but I'm really excited for you guys to hear that. So I'm going to be seeing you then. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I am super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. I promise. <laughs>